Welcome back, listeners, to another Ag Watchers with myself, Andrew Whitelaw, and Matt Dalglish, aka Meat Watcher and Wheat Watcher. Uh, back with another podcast this week. Uh, no guests, just the two of us. Uh, what we want to do is have a bit of a chat about what's been happening in the market in in recent times. Uh, yeah, so we're basically going to be covering off probably mostly on cattle and grains. Uh, so yeah, Matt, what's been happening in cattle? Hey, Andrew, and uh, welcome, listeners. Um, oh, look, the big news has just been the rise and rise of the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator. Um, so just yesterday, it closed at a record nominal high. We've had a few record nominal highs through the year already, but we're um, just short of uh, 90 cents a kilo carcass weight. I think it was 889 and a bit. Um, as of yesterday, which, um, yeah, it's, it's phenomenal uh, pricing. Uh, it just made me think going back to uh, the trade matrix we put out a few weeks ago on Thomas Elder Markets. Uh, and um, when you're converting these, these kind of carcass weight prices into live prices and then looking at a grass-fed trade, um, young cattle at those levels, I think it's something like 480 cents a kilo or so live weight price at those levels now. Um, there really isn't much money in the heavier ecky cattle. Like if you talk cattle that are weighing above 300 kilo, um, you know, when you look at the, the trade, it's, um, it's, you know, it's not a lot or none, no, no margin you're going to earn really. It's going to be negative uh, if you're turning them off at, at kind of current heavy weight prices. Um, and our forecast modelling, as you know, Andrew, for heavy, heavy cattle into, into this season towards next season type thing is for a, about a 5% decline in price. So, um, there are a few headwinds for heavy heavy cattle with the Aussie going up and and global prices being um, you know lower than Australian prices. So, so so is it is it sustainable then? Like if you if you're buying well, buying high selling low doesn't is usually not the best way of. No, no, that's right. Look, certainly for the heavier heavier young cattle, so those that are above 300 kilo, I can't see how you're making money at these prices. For for lighter weight, and so you have got to remember the Eki is consisting of cattle that weigh between 200 to 400 kilo live weight. So you've basically got, you know, some that are above 300 and some that are below. So uh, for those Eki style cattle that are, you know, 250, 260, 270 kilo, um, if you're buying them at these prices at those weights, uh, you could probably still turn a bit of a profit, but that's assuming you can sell it at, you know, 370 odd cents live weight as a finished steer. Um, if those finished steer prices, you know, kind of start to ease over the season, then you know it gets tight again. Um, maybe if, those that are buying, if, buying hits, you go. If you're if you're on the east coast, yeah, we've got plenty yep. of grass. Like you just got to drive around here to see that there's plenty of pasture, and it seems to be all the way through New South Wales. I'm not sure about Queensland, but why would you sell cattle if they were light? What would be oh, I don't think you. Yeah. Well, I mean, depending upon and, your. And and is that having an impact on the number of? The availability of of cattle at, at yards for sale. Mm. I mean, if you're if you're in the breeding side of things, then and you've only got a, de- a designated amount of land to which mm. to keep your breeding stock, then you know you, you do you sometimes will sell cattle um, as required. Sometimes that means you know as we see with the weaner sales and stuff, there are people that that they're in the business of selling weaners, and they've had a great season, of course. But you know, there's only there's only so much you can do with your property. And so every enterprise will do what, what suits their particular skill set and, and, and requirements you know, around that property. 
Um, but yeah, if you if you if you're just a backgrounder and you've got some light cattle at hand, um, not you not you know you'd be foolish to to sell them. I think, uh, and I mean unless you just think the prices are, are ridiculous, but then you've got to take into account what you're going to do with all that pasture you've got. You could probably um, you know um, bundle up as, uh, as as kind of fodder for storage or fodder to be sold at a later stage, or if you've got that ability to store it. Uh, you know, but you know, so there are other options. But yeah, if you're looking strictly at a grass-fed trade, there's not much in it nowadays at these prices. I think um, it's it's starting to get to really crazy levels. Maybe for heifers, you know, if you if you're happy to get some heifers and put a bull over them and breed, you could probably still pay these high prices for some young, good quality, lightweight heifers, and with a view to obviously you know breeding with them, because uh, then you'll get the value of the progeny as well. So that there might be money in that. Um, but yeah, it's it's just um, I don't know if we can. Looking at where the current finished price is for steers now, and just assuming that that stays stable for the next year, which is a big assumption. Um, once you're getting above nine twenty five or something like that, uh, carcass weight on the ecky, then that's that's really you know I, I can't see much beyond that. Uh, you know, and we're we're only thirty odd cents away from that, thirty five cents away from that. So, be interesting to see what happens, mate. Um, and next, um, you know, next. And I guess that's where it becomes interesting. We just had two years of pretty bad drought, three in some places. Then we had an average year before that and a good year before that. So we were talking like 2016, but then you had 2015 was average, 2014 was dry. You know, I, I don't want to sound like, you know, negative Nelly here, but what happens if we get a drought? in 2000 and not 22 but let's say 22 late 22 or into 23 which if you go by the previous you know sort of three to four years between you know dry conditions what happens then to prices yeah well they're under pressure again aren't they so even with the tight supply uh we've seen that you know if the drought's significant enough then it, they go under pressure and um and that's what happens and so that is and that is a risk when you look back at the last um 120 or 30 years of rainfall data in Australia. Um, I think I did the, the the numbers on this about a month ago. Uh, and when you look, when you've got, often we do get two seasons where it's a good, you know, rainfall event, and whether that's a you know a historic La Nina showing up. Um, but so you get you know two really good rainfall event years, and then often uh, historically uh, the dry tends to come somewhere between two to four years after that. Uh, and so, yeah, from your, your your kind of date that you had in mind of 2023, maybe 2024 would, would match perfectly where we're back into dry again. So you don't have a, a big window of opportunity. So um, I guess, so yeah. I guess it, re- it really says to all these producers that the decisions you make now will really be the ones that make it through the next drought. Mm. You know, it's probably yeah, definitely. like those, those, those risk management you know, decisions are going to uh, pay off if you if you make them well now. Yeah, yeah, definitely. What about the uh, the other one was a one that we've spent a lot of time over the years looking at is live sheep exports, and obviously it's been a tumultuous sort of period the last sort of three to four years with the Owasi Express. What are we start? Are we starting to see anything there in terms of? you know our our export volumes because we've obviously got that moratorium that exists just now for a big chunk of the year i think it's still that's still in place isn't it yeah it is yep yep so um 
they're still looking at, at whether they continue to have it. At the moment, it's kind of like a three-month period. So it's the Northern Hemisphere summer, uh, our winter, when, when we don't send any. So June, July, August, effectively. Um, and, I mean, the issue, the, and we have seen lower volumes uh, the last few years uh, of live sheep export. It's, it's, it's hard to tell, is it? Just that it's not just the moratorium, obviously, because we have had tighter supply. Um, so, you know, numbers are down in terms of overall flock and uh, and so that can feed into that. And and supply, we've had higher prices too. So that can sometimes curb some of the volumes, um, both from a supply and a price perspective. Um, but even so, when you look at the pattern through the season to our key partners that we trade with, uh, with live export sheep, um, in 2019, we tended to get higher than average either side of the moratorium, higher than average flows when you compare them to the previous you know, year's monthly flows. But in 2020, we actually, for almost all of the top four nations, we didn't see quite the level of um, volume of flows. So um, I, I'm suspecting that there may be um, some nations that are, that are becoming a bit frustrated with um, the lack of consistency and reliability from Australia these days. Um, you know, so, so that's a concern, I guess, longer term, if we do start to, you know, kind of make ourselves too difficult to trade with, um, some of these countries might start looking elsewhere, uh, which, you know, for the southeastern states, I guess it's not a huge concern because there's hardly any to go anymore. Uh, but, you know, the last few years, WA have done, you know, over 95% of our live sheep export flows. And so they're very still heavily, heavily weighted towards, um, you know, towards that live export sector. It's, it's a big significant part of their, of their, of their enterprise mix in WA. Uh, and, you know, we've already seen it. They're in drought themselves now. I mean, they're very different scenario in, in WA to the East Coast. So we've seen a lot of sheep come across from WA to New South Wales, particularly this year. So their flocks down, you know, we've got the issue with New Zealand shearers not being able to get across. So it's already hard enough to get shearers as it is. So there could be, there could be some WA players that just, you know, are at the stage now with the live export turmoil as well, that they just throw their hands up and say, I'm just getting out of sheep. It's just too much of a hassle. Um, and that could have implications then for the broader wool industry, Andrew. And I know you're a, a bit of a wool analyst these days. Um, oh, I've, you know, I've, so I've, had, I've had my uh, little dabbles looking at the numbers of, of, of wool and fibres, you know. That's why they're calling me uh, the wool watcher now. Yeah. Um, yeah, fleece know. watcher. Fleece watcher. Yeah. Fleecing it. Yeah. But no, I think it's, I think there's just that live export industry. It's, it's, it has the potential, but it seems like it's it's got everything going against it now in terms of, you know, it's not an easy market to operate in if, if you've got, you know, government, effectively what is government intervention in the marketplace. And then you've also got, you know, that's COVID, like you say, impacting upon shearers, which just, you know, pushes things around. And then, you know, it's going to be expensive to restock. So, so send them over east when... Mm. If there's no water, because we know there's a lot of people carting water in, in WA, which is a expensive process, which is really what happened mm. in, what, 2010? Yeah, that's right. And we already know, too, historically on the East Coast, um, that switch out of um, sheep, uh, mostly it was wool back in you know, the last few decades and, and, and people switching out and, and going to cropping instead. Um, in WA, there's probably still a bit more room to manoeuvre where where. You know there is um, the ability to to move more into cropping there and out of sheep, and 
I guess with their isolation and um, and the supply chain in areas is a bit tenuous, um, it wouldn't take much to, to if the if the flock in WA continued to get eroded, how long before it just becomes unsustainable as a sector? I'm talking not just you know prime land, but but you know wool as well. Um, you know, does WA just become a cropping state and that's it? You know, not worry about sheep and lamb and wool. Um, anyway, but you know, that's the thing for probably longer term focus. What about um, that's a, that's what's a good, been going on? In- that's a good segue into grains. Yeah, exactly. So it's been like it's been an interesting couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> probably the first one was our 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 friend Vlad the Lad over in Russia mm-hmm. with his. Uh, his wheat export tariffs, which which have been interesting because when they first the first tranche of them came out in mid December, and we we spoke about them then and uh, wrote about how effectively it wouldn't do anything because if you're a major exporter of a, of a commodity and you import an export enact an export tariff, you actually influence the whole global market, which pushes up prices anyway. It actually has to be a percentage you know, like a ratio for it to actually make any effect. So we had said, suggested that, uh, or I suggested that that policy of in, in, introducing a, you know, at that point, a 40 Aussie dollar tariff, all that would do is actually bring up the market and it would effectively just mean that consumers were actually paying more or it would have no real benefit. So then Russia decided uh, in January to, well, it wasn't working. Food prices were still going up locally. And they, um, they doubled it to $80 a ton from March onwards. Mm. So it's sort of like it just becomes, again, I don't agree with government intervention in markets because it just tends to go wrong. We've seen plenty of examples of that with the, you know, the wool price crash, you know, quotas in wheat in the 70s, and it just doesn't help. And so I think this will this will also not help, and it will probably result in farmers considering, Russian farmers, I mean here, uh, considering keeping their grain until July, until the, the policy changes again to a, 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 a ratioed model. Mm. Uh, but but overall, like, why that's important to us is that as Russia is the biggest exporter in the world, them increasing effectively adding a a a forty and then eighty dollar tariff onto their wheat, effectively that says well we've got room to increase our prices for exports from Australia because of the fact that suddenly everything coming out of Australia becomes uh, out of Russia sorry becomes eighty dollars more expensive. Mm. So mm. it's a good news thing for Australian exporters. And you, you that was you made mention that when you put out, I think it was was a pre Christmas. You did a bit of a love letter to Mr. Putin, um, wasn't that one? When you're talking about how he's really helped the Australian farmer there, um, you weren't shit canning Putin, were you? You're just, um, you're nah, just nah, he's, he's he's a lad. He's one of the lads. Yeah. No, no, old old Vladimir. He he helped us. And, and to be honest, he's helping us again by increasing it. Mm. So so it's good. And, and it's not often Australian farmers get assisted by government intervention in markets from overseas uh, governments. So yeah. it's pretty good. The, the, law, the law of unintended consequences. Yeah, well, that's what happens is the governments get involved in, in markets. In, 
goes in the favour of the Australians. And yeah, yeah. So that's that's one mm-hmm. thing. The other thing is uh, barley. We end up with um, we've also had that issue with China over the last well since May last year, and and before that it was unofficial. Uh, we we no longer have China as a market, uh, so we have to find other homes. Saudi Arabia is the largest importer of barley in the world, so makes an obvious choice. Uh, we won a major tender in November. I think it was off the top of my head, 700,000 tons, give or take. And then the real litmus test was this tender last week. And that was all but one boat was from Australia by the looks of it, uh, which which is good. It's another what, 660,000 tons. And uh, the good thing about that was that we've got a... Uh, a price which is about 18% higher than the last uh, tender, which is largely off the back of, uh, you know, global markets anyway, where we're all have all been on a bit of a, a, a rally since then, including corn, wheat and barley. Uh, so it's good that we managed to get that because we need to get that barley out of the door. And, and when we look at it, you know, there was a lot of concerns at the start of the season that prices would be low, but factors overseas you know, have helped us. And to give you an example, like in Quinana, WA, at the start of January, we're talking $260 a ton. And then two or three days ago, $292 a ton. So a $30 rise is not that bad, considering nationally the crop is is pretty pretty goddamn big, really. So I expect we'll and prob- so. I was just going to say, was with that price rise though, does that does that mean that we're, from a global perspective, are we still kind of one of the cheaper providers of barley internationally, or are we back kind of up with you know what other nations are selling their barley, or you know like I know there was that disruption with China and and that they were very um, good payers in terms of price. Um, you know where do we where do where do those pricing levels fit in the, with the rest of the world? Yeah, so. I haven't actually checked the numbers in the last couple of in the last week or so, uh, compared against like France or the Black Sea. France doesn't have that much left to sell, uh, and the Black Sea, mm. you know, we are more competitive than the Black Sea because, well, they uh, they only got by the looks of it one boat versus our off the top of my head eight boats, might be less. Regardless, ninety mm. percent of it came from from uh, from Australia, so so we are competitive mm. and. We are getting uh, volume out there. And to give you an example, like the actual price, we had said that the price would be around about, you know, three fifty to three fifty eight uh, last week when the tender went out, and the average price ended up being three fifty eight uh, Aussie dollar, which is for for the listeners got to remember it's actually including freight and insurance and loading and getting it all the way to Saudi Arabia. So it's not that's not yep. your price plus margin. There's, there's a little bit more cost in there. Mm. So, so all in all, like it's actually yep. on the grain side of things, it's the most positive it's been for years. Probably, probably, I would say more positive to an extent than 2016 on the East Coast, at least, because you got good prices mm. and good yields. Yeah, well, that's that's the thing. So, yeah, to have these kind of prices in a in a season when we're getting such good yields is a good good outcome all around. 
Yeah, we'll just have to see what happens because at the end of the day, we are still in that period, which is usually the quiet period. And coming up, we've got, you know, that Northern Hemisphere risk market where really the fireworks do start to take off. And that'll be when it gets really quite interesting, especially that sort of June, July, August. Keep an eye peeled. Very good. And, and, um, I guess almost almost done. I, I suggest Andrew with this one, but I, I, did you want to make a quick mention to any of our listeners in South Australia? Um, you're going to be over there and oh yeah, uh, doing yeah. a little bit of a, a whirlwind workshop tour for for um, grain producers South Australia. You want to give us a quick rundown of that while while you're at it? Yep. So we've been tasked by Grain Producers South Australia to to come over and provide some. Uh, Workshops on on grain markets and, and grain marketing. Uh, so that will be held all over the state. The first two are next week on the AP. And uh, look, we're trying to make it as as fun as possible because we know a lot of farmers are not necessarily all that interested in the nitty gritty of grain markets. So we're trying to make it hands on. And that uh, no, should be really good fun, actually. Uh, I actually had a lot of fun making up the you know, the workshop uh, material and uh, no, get along. If you're, if you're in South Australia, if you're a member of GPSA, then uh, you can come to the event. Uh, but every, every grain producer in, uh, in South Australia is eligible to be a member free of charge. Uh, so yeah, just stick your name down and there's, there's, there'll be spaces there, but it is after speaking to GPSA yesterday, there's not that many spaces left on next week's ones. And then at the end of the month, we go to uh, the more sort of eastern side of South Australia. So there'll be another four, but check on the Grain Producers SA website or their social media and you can uh, and you can see where they are. So it should be good fun. That's good. All right, well, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, but thanks everyone for listening. Uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family. If you've got a long journey coming up, you can uh, subscribe to the podcast. You know, you can uh, listen to this for hours upon hours on ends to get all those insights from from us and our uh, and our special guests. And if you if you listen to this on iTunes, feel free to rate it. Uh, but yeah, have a good and safe weekend. All the best. Thank you.